Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. My special guest artist for today is a musician that I've never met or performed with. I heard about him while on vacation this past summer in Maine, and we've only spoken on the phone a few times. He can play in any style of music and is the only person to ever win the trio of world championships on acoustic, digital, and jazz accordion. Yes, I said accordion. As an accordion graduate of the prestigious New England Conservatory of Music, he also became a Guinness World Record holder to break the marathon accordion record in which he played for 32 hours and 14 minutes. This gentleman has given two TED Talks, two Google Talks, and has spoken at various other conferences on the accordion. His goal is to revolutionize the accordion, and he's passionately doing just that. His extensive resume includes appearances at the White House, TV shows that include The Late Show with David Letterman, and nationally televised programs in New Zealand, Canada, Italy, Tunisia, France, and Finland. In addition, his bigger-than-life personality has made him an Instagram sensation. Music legend Quincy Jones once told him, No one is doing all that stuff you're doing today. Yeah, man, you can really play. This extremely impressive and versatile accordionist certainly got chops. Please welcome my new friend, Corey Pesaturo, a.k.a. CPES. Hi, Corey. How are you? Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this. Corey and I really don't know each other other than uh, just talking on the phone a few times in the last few months or so. So before we get to that, let me ask you, where are you calling from? Because I know you travel quite a lot. (laughs) Well, I just got home from about seven weeks of travel. I'm back in my home state of Rhode Island. Wow. Okay. Well, welcome back. I hope you're relaxing. So Let me uh, fill in my audience about how you and I were connected. So this past summer, while my wife and I were on vacation, I heard of this incredible musician, Corey Pesatora, a.k.a. C-Pez, through friends of ours that we are enjoying spending time with every summer in Maine for the last four or five years, I'd say. And they are Bill and Maureen Griggs. And by the way, Bill says hi. 
<laughs> I always say I back for sure. Okay. And uh, Corey and I have spoken on the phone a few times since then uh, regarding scheduling a time for this interview. And it's usually as he's running through the airport trying to catch his flight. And I've seen that on his Instagram videos. They're really funny. So I'm really looking forward to conducting this interview with someone that I really don't know or have ever performed with other than what I've read or heard on social media. And what I've seen and heard blew my mind. It really blew me away. I've got to say that. So Corey is a three-time world accordion champion, a Guinness World Record holder for the longest continuous playing of the accordion, and a music artist for Roland's V Accordion. His music has been played for various Formula One races. He's done two TED Talks, not one, two. He plays both the acoustic and electric accordion. He's got a really cool red-colored accordion. you got to check it out. And he performs around the world, all genres, all styles, and he's an Instagram sensation. Corey, those are incredibly impressive career facts. Wow. <laughs> I'm just trying. That's what I was saying. I'm just trying to keep up with everybody else. Oh, you're, you're doing more than trying. What does the music slang Got Chops mean to you? Got Chops. Ooh. Yeah, that, that is very much music slang. I mean, in all the genres I've ever dealt with, uh, and even the accordion itself, Got Chops would mean technique, speed, uh, more more on that aspect. Uh, it's not usually used in terms of uh, some beautiful lines played in a ballad, but it's more used, yes, in uh, how technical, how fast you can cleanly play, and uh, or in my case, like playing jazz tunes at 500 beats per minute. But yeah. <laughs> and he does. You got to check out these videos. We'll talk about that later. It's really <laughs> impressive. So I understand that you grew up in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Was it a musical household? Not really. It's kind of an interesting thing because it's a two-way answer. It's not, it was not a musical family at all, but my dad did play accordion back in the days when the accordion was big and then quit when everybody else quit and rock and roll took over uh, as, a, as a little kid. And then he took it out when I was nine years old and said, do you want to play accordion? And I, of course, did not want to, but being in a Italian family, and uh, it's like, well, I want to make parents proud, so okay, I'll play accordion. Um, and, and that's how that began. And really, my motivation was competition, because I've always been very competitive, whether we're playing mini golf or bowling or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I was never good at, at sports. And I realized early on that I was very good at the accordion and in music, and I was like, huh, okay, well, maybe this will be my, my sport. So that's kind of how it initially began. Wow. And that was at age nine, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm nine and a half or so, yeah. And did you uh, begin to study accordion privately and, you know, seriously at that time? And if you did, uh, with whom? And what kind of uh, accordion method books did you work out of? I know nothing about this. Ah, okay. We'll do a little accordion history. Uh, well, my, my dad had gotten me into this studio that uh, was, was kind of your usual accordion studio. And I was progressing so fast that he, <laughs> being, being who he is, he went out and, and found the legendary accordion teacher, Tullio Gasparini, who had retired. And somehow, I don't know how, I don't know if we'll ever find out how, <laughs> I never say it, got him out of retirement. And pulled me out of the studio, and I'd go down on Thursdays to see Tulio. Uh, so I was the only accordion person in all these New England competitions early on that was not at a studio. Uh, and I just had a specific 
teacher, and, uh, and I was Tulio's last student. So that's that's kind of how that progressed. And on the method books, very interestingly, there were, <clears throat> there's so many unique aspects of the accordion world. This is one. Everybody studies out of the same method books and has since the late 50s and 60s, and that's the Palmer Hughes books. There are 10 books, although early on some in some cases is 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B. But basically there's, there's 10 books. And and you go through them, and they teach you know hand position and some early songs and tunes that you should know. And then once you get to say book six, you're starting to play tunes that you can go out and play gigs with, like La Comparsita, or you can play Come Back to Sorrento, or a clarinet polka, and things to at least get you to be able to play some background gigs and and play with some people. Um, so that that's what it is. The Palmer Hughes books, and it was two guys, Bill Palmer. And, and Hughes and uh, Bill Palmer's son actually still lives in Texas and does lots of accordion stuff, but they were an act for a while on TV. And then they created this method book and it has become the gold standard to this day that people still learn accordion from. Wow. Well, with your background and experiences, have you ever thought of starting your own method? Very much, actually. <laughs> no one's ever really asked that, but yes, um, I, I have. I kind of want to wait till I, I could maybe get the accordion to get some momentum uh, behind it. But I, I have, you know, uh, kind of written out some things on Sibelius and stuff, just tunes that are of the modern era. Some, you know, whether whether it's Billie Eilish tunes or uh, Beyonce tunes or Justin Bieber tunes. Even if I hate them, it doesn't matter. It's what is going to get a kid interested. You know, even a One Direction tune. But because so much of music in the past many decades is so simple, it's very easy to put those in book one because it's just, you know, they're very, very simple, whether it's the chords, melody. So you can get someone to, to play some of these tunes, Taylor Swift tunes, you know, in the first couple of lessons uh, before you move on to difficult stuff. So there is a pathway there if you can get kids interested enough to actually learn the accordion. The, the problem with it, uh, of all things, is is that it takes a while to sound remotely good at. And that's <clears throat> the case with the trumpet and the case with the uh, violin and cello and many instruments. But th those instruments are more common. And, and, you know, even if only one out of 100 violin students actually stays for a month, <laughs> let alone for years, that's enough. With the accordion, there are so few people in the whole country that are interested. To get a kid to really say, all right, I'm going to spend time for five years to try to sound good on this. It's it's really tough in today's generation of instant gratification. So that's always been working against the accordion, uh, at least in America. Wow. Did you play accordion in any of your school ensembles? We're talking about grade school, middle school, high school. So, no, of course, uh, like everyone <laughs> would find out as a kid, you go into middle school and the first day, if you want to join band in sixth grade, you got to go pick an instrument. And of course, I went up to a Mr. Bowser, who I still know. And uh, as I play accordion, it's like, well, that's very cool, but we don't have accordion. So you have to pick something else. So I said, well, the accordion is so dang heavy. I want to pick the smallest instrument. And flute was always seen as, as a girl instrument. So I said, okay, let me go up one from that clarinet. Okay, I picked clarinet. So I played, and I'm happy I did because then I, I quickly went to tenor sax and alto sax. So I mainly played those three instruments throughout uh, high school. And once in a while, I'd swing in the accordion and uh, would, 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 you know, have that aspect. And uh, I wrote an arrangement once uh, for my high school jazz band and, and included accordion. So <laughs> you could throw that in there. Wow. How cool is that? And what did your other friends in the band think of when they found out that you played accordion? Well, people people had known by by high school 
um, because I I'd started playing accordion, you know, well, it's like third grade or so. And my White House visits happened when I was 11, uh, 10, 11, into 12. So by the time I was in high school, everybody knew, you know, Corey, the accordion kid. So <laughs> that wow. was kind of a... That was kind of a thing. But I was far more popular as a teacher's pet with all the teachers than the students because kids, you know, they could accordion. Who cares? But it was it was cool for, you know, brownie points with every teacher. That's that's really interesting. How long did you practice the accordion per day when you began to get serious about music studies? Well, that is the question that everyone's like, what about? And that the answer is an hour and probably really less than an hour. Uh, you know, my dad would force me to make sure I played an hour a day. You know, we want to be playing outside with my friends. I'd want to be playing video games, uh, whatever the case. I've always been a big sports guy watching sports. So, you know, it, it was tough. It was never something I wanted to do practice-wise. I had to be forced to practice, even with the motivation knowing as I got, you know, two, three, four years in that I had a talent for it. It was all, it was always, you know, more strenuous thing. So, yeah, really, it was an hour a day. And I, I can't explain how I can play like I play doing that, except for the fact that I always tell people listening is everything. You know, I always listened constantly. I would always have on these classic accordion records from the 30s and 40s, but to be listening, 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 and getting it in my head, as, as I, of course, do with jazz. You know, I want to learn a tune. I listen to 50 different versions of that tune before I go into playing it. I want to see everybody does it, and then you create your own. So, um, and I'm very visual. And how I play, it's it's like if someone does, a, if I think of some random lick, like uh, think of a major triad going down half steps very quickly with like a chromatic at the top of it. Yes. It's not something I would ever have to practice. I would never have to go dee 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 dee. I don't. I just I can visualize it immediately and play it without a problem because I'm always thinking of things kind of visually on on the keyboard. Um, and so there's that. And also, I would say video games. That's something I almost want to do a whole, I don't know, deep report into is the the independence of fingers at exact moments in different milliseconds to play video games well. Does that have an effect on playing and improvising at high speed? Because it really is the same idea. It's the mind thinks of something and tells the fingers to react exactly in an exact manner and exact order at the same time. And because something has to explain how I only practice an hour, less than an hour a day and play like I played when I was 15, 16, 17. So I, I'm not sure. Not that I, I hope parents don't hear this. <laughs> say, oh, no, I'm trying to get my kid to stop playing video games. So I, I don't know. But um, it's, it's a mix of things, really. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, you were obviously very advanced at a young age. And what I find fascinating um, is most students at that age middle school, high school, when they're in music and sports, usually the sports wins out. And I know you're still very heavily into sports and everything else. But never played them. That's the thing. I never really played them. <laughs> I was terrible at them. I was terrible. Uh, I was probably the, the worst soccer player in my middle school, though I was put on the best team because I was about the worst. So we actually won the title that year. That was hilarious. <laughs> my, my parents would be like, get him off the team. <laughs> but you were a big sports fan. Oh, always, always happen. I mean, even tonight I'll be watching certainly uh, my Brady and the Bucks, and uh, of course the the huge Dodgers Giants game. Uh, that's a big deal. So I, you know, I always love the storylines in it, and uh, and I mix my career in it. Whether I'm like you said, I do stuff with Red Bull and the Formula One team, 
but I've also done music for the Red Sox. And so I'm always trying to, to mix the careers. And it's an interesting way in because I'm not trying to steal anyone's job. I'm not trying to be an engineer. I'm not trying to be a data guy. I'm not trying to be any. I'm just, hey, I do unique stuff with music. I'd love to collaborate with you guys in some way. So it, it's it's a kind of an easy way and unique way in. And then you just have to deliver. So I'm always trying to mix all, all my different hobbies, which will have way, way too many hobbies. But uh, it's it's kind of the fun. Of, of life. It sounds like it's working for you. What musical artists were you inspired by early on, and are they the same artists that continue to inspire you today? Well, I guess a multifaceted answer. Certainly when I was young, all I listened to was uh, mostly accordion legends from yesteryear when the accordion was such a big deal, um, and grew up listening to a ton of Charlie Mignanti and Charlie Nunzio and John Molinari and Cantino was the most famous guy, uh, and Tony Lovello and some of these guys I became good friends with later on. But basically, all names that you wouldn't have heard of, um, and most people think, oh, Piazzolla. But I never heard of Piazzolla until I was 20 years old. Never heard of the guy because in the accordion world, the accordion world has these names like I just mentioned that are in the accordion world and were legends in the accordion world. Right. Piazzolla was a musician, more of a musician known than an accordion player. So. You know, so that's kind of the interesting aspect of it. I remember, I remember at NEC, people were like, you don't know who Piazzolla is? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> that's not who we studied. That's not who we listened to. That's not who we revered in the accordion world worldwide, really, in a lot of ways. So, um, and anybody else would be a famous accordion player, like, like a Weird Al. I barely knew who that was, of course. So um, it was more of those guys. But then when I got into jazz, I mean, Art Tatum is just... You know, my hero. He's <laughs> a great accordion player, right? <laughs> Art Tatum? <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine if he played a Oh, my God. Um, so what he would have done. So, yeah, him. And, I mean, in terms of pure soloing, I mean, Keith Jarrett and Wynton Marsalis, if, you know, you want to learn how to do solos, just transcribe them. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, the Bill Evans is of the world. I One of my teachers at New England Conservatory was Rand Blake. I mean, he's one of the greatest rehomanizers ever. And... Um, I mean, there are many. I love Freddie Hubbard, love uh, Joe Anderson, love, I mean, God, there's, there's so many. I don't know if there's one specifically, probably the one that I sound the most like would be, when I, when I play jazz, would be Chick Corea. Um, a fellow Italian that, that nobody knows, because he always did Spanish stuff, so he's like, he's Spanish, he was actually Italian. From Boston, too. Oh, I remember that. Um, it's funny, what when I was a student at Berklee College of Music, um, I just happened to be at the front entrance, and lo and behold, comes Chick Corea walking in. I'm going, whoa. And then um, <laughs> Woody Herman and his uh, big band. So they were recording there to do an, a, a collaboration on an album. I was flipping out. I was, oh, my God, there's Chick. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, he, I, you know, I never got to play with him, which I was still met him a couple times, but never... You know, we talked a little accordion, but um, yeah, I've I've certainly listened to to a ton of Chick and and Herbie and you know all, all the great Oscar Peterson. Oh my God! Um, classically, I'm I just love Chopin because to me he was the first jazz pianist and a lot of ways first jazz musician. You look at his chord changes and oh, it's just absolutely. straight up jazz. You don't even have to change it. You just write out the changes in his music. You put a, a constant quarter note bass line behind it with the ding 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 drums and it's it's jazz 
Uh, and he has bebop lines all over the music. He has chromatic two fives. He didn't call them chromatic two fives, but that's what they were. You know, so it's like, man, imagine what Chopin would have been if he was born a hundred years later. Oh my God! So, <laughs> so I love that uh, um, comparison, that analysis. I think you're onto something here. I think there's another album in the works for you. Well, and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first thing because. Arguably the greatest jazz accordion player ever, Tommy Gamina uh, from Milwaukee. He got back in the 60s. He was playing a lot with Buddy DeFranco. It was, oh my God, another ridiculously incredible. I mean, you want to learn jazz soloing? Just transcribe Buddy. It's like it's That's like right. a machine. Um, and but and and but he played a lot with Tommy Gamina. And and he talks a lot. There's many pages in, in uh, Buddy DeFranco's book uh devoted to tommy camina and how at first the agents are like what you're going to play with an accordion player uh it's funny because you think 60 years ago the story was different no it was exactly the same all the agents are like why are you going to play with an accordion player? <laughs> but you know it was fantastic um but tommy did a record once where he did waltz and c sharp minor same thing just put bass lines behind it sped it up it's like a jazz tune um and and so is the idea of playing chopin as jazz is, is certainly as someone once said no matter what idea you come up with someone a lot smarter than you thought of it 50 years ago and it's always true even the lights in my accordion someone first put lights in the grill of an accordion synchronized with the keys in 1961 really 50 years before i did it so it's it's always unique how that goes. and i know what that accordion is good friend of mine uh the, the woman that actually had it initially she found it and, and bought it back so it's back in her possession it's a cool cool story oh isn't that funny uh for the young listeners in my audience that are not familiar with accordion i mean they've read about it they've seen it but really have probably never witnessed it played live in front of them um i'm a bit older than you so when i was a kid if you went to a family affair you know like um a wedding a bar mitzvah there was always a band there was always an accordion player uh, so that was typical and you would you know associate accordion with a, a polka band okay um you know, Polish polkas or other types of polkas, you would uh, associate that with an Italian wedding or any, you know, very heavy on the ethnic background. Yeah. So, and, but you have you know, brought it into, you know, a whole other level. I mean, with your contemporary playing and your thoughts, I mean, that's brilliant. Just keep going. That's great. I'm, I'm always trying to focus on where can I put it that it's not expected. And it's kind of why I've never done much in the one of the few genres I don't do much in is the Celtic area, because the accordion is so well respected and loved and used all. And I feel like, okay, there's nothing for me to really do there. I still love playing with it, but there's so many amazing accordion players. Like, hey, I'm not going to go there. But I try to put it in places you would you'd not expect it, especially doing you know solo jazz with the bass and the drums and the comping and the soloing um, or all my electronic stuff where I'm the DJ and I'm playing everything you hear. There's no backing tracks, uh, things like that, or playing rock solo with the drums on the left hand and everything. Uh, I'm always just trying to get people to realize what an astounding instrument the accordion is. And I guess just to give the, for the young listeners, a one minute synopsis of accordion history in America, it, it came with all the immigrants because most of the immigrant groups that came to America, the late 1800s, early 1900s, were accordion cultures, whether it's the Germans or the Irish or the Polish or the Italians. 
you know, it was very much all accordion and, and of course, and Jews as well. I mean, klezmer music, I probably play more klezmer music than I play anything. Uh, accordion's huge in klezmer music. So accordion was all over. And uh, really, there was a star initially, the guy that brought piano accordion over, Guido Dero. He brought it over in 1909 and became massively popular in the 19 teens, was a superstar. And uh, Mae West was his opening act. And he really, really made, he made her you know, excellent at being a stage president. Everything. He worked on our ton. And then she became famous 15 years later. You know, she got popular much later in life. <clears throat> and, but Guido was, was a vaudeville guy. And so, so that was the first hint. And then accordion died a little bit in the thirties and into the forties, but it was still there. And then Dick Contino uh, went on the Horsehide show in December, 1948 and through the early fifties was an absolute superstar. And there's a great picture uh, and at the Sands in Vegas, where Dick and Tino's in big letters and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis are in small letters to give an idea of how big Dick and Tino was. He was even had a movie that I just found out two days ago when I went to the Boston Symphony. The, the bass player, Larry Wolf, uh, was telling me because he's worked with John Williams so many times. He said, you know what John Williams first score was? Was daddy the movie Dick and Tino starred in. So there's a real unique tie in. Uh, of of all things, and that was back in 1950. Oh boy, it was 56 or 58 that that Dick and Tina was in that that film. So the accordion had that huge boost. It was the biggest export of Italy, and most of that was coming to America. And then the accordion was slowly dying off, late 50s into the 60s. But then as soon as rock and roll and the Beatles landed, it plummeted in in days, just days, and went from something cool that people did to you don't want to be caught dead with an accordion. You must have a piano, a guitar, or drums, or that's, sing. And that's get right. And probably along with that, um, uh, ballroom dancing, society, you know, dancing, yeah. where you play a foxtrot, a merengue, a waltz, um, that probably all went by the wayside for a little bit because rock and roll took over. Yeah. And the accordion was just attached to the, the earlier era. And then you have the culture situation where the 60s are the first generation of kids to viciously not do what they you know, the parents tell them to do this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, we are not going to be like every other. We're going to do our own thing. And part of that old thing was the accordion. Their parents played accordion. They were viciously going to be against that. They're going to play guitar. So it was just a whole bunch of things came together and, uh, and, and threw that down. And not to mention accordions were incredibly expensive back then. They were pretty much the same price as today. I mean, a good accordion was going to be two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. Wow. You know how much money that was in the fifties? Oh yes. Oh. <laughs> you could buy a nice car. I mean, That's right. It's crazy. And today, you know, you can buy really nice accordions for two, three, four thousand dollars <laughs> It's kind of uh, astounding. So there's no reason to play accordion. You can play a guitar, you, could, you know, sing, do something else. So, and it's never recovered. It's it's now gotten past the negative stage. We're still in there in the 90s, early 2000s. We're still negative. We've kind of gotten out of that, and now it's in the odd stage. It's like, oh, yeah, like the accordion, right? It's kind of like a unique instrument that many people play. It's not laughed at so much anymore. It's, it's, it's kind of out of that, but we are nowhere near it being cool or normal as it is in say brazil argentina finland sweden norway um the france uh part of much of russia is this various even china's exploding right now i mean there's a zillion people now starting to play accordion in china so so every country is extremely different ireland of course is very normally play accordion so different accordions all in these different countries by the way of course there's a million different kinds of accordions but 
all in that family of some kind of squeeze box. So every country's history is, is very different, but America's has just pretty much been dead since the night the Beatles went on at Sullivan show in 1962. It's pretty much been dead since then. And uh, it's it, even when it comes back, you're like, Oh, I see it coming back. It's still a caricature of itself when it comes back. People still want if even if they want accordion, they want accordion because it fills some nostalgic need or ethnic need. No one is thinking, I want accordion because accordion's cool. There's very few people that are in that category. It's still like, oh, well, for the wedding, so the groom is Italian, so we're going to have an accordion player. Like That's how it's thought of. Um, that's right. But, but it's, you know, that, and that's why I try to play everything. And show that this instrument is not just <laughs> categorized in this area. But but there's a positive in the fact that it has that ethnicity because you will not find an instrument on planet Earth that is not only important to more cultures, but is absolutely beyond vital to more cultures. You can't have an Argentine tango group without accordion. You can't have a Brazilian group without accordion. You can't have a Jewish klezmer group without accordion. You can't have a Mexican Norteño music without the accordion. You can't have Irish music. Can't have German. Can't have Italian. Can't have French. Can't have a Russian folk band. They go around the world. You, with, you can't have it unless it's got the accordion. You're and right. it's just America never... It never seeped into the culture, but I mean, heck, even jazz, which is a totally American, you can't, it's hard to <laughs> get jazz to be popular. That was American too. So it's just never really set foot here. It was mainly due to the immigrants who brought their accordions over. And it's such a great instrument because it's portable. Wow. Well, that's, uh, you're certainly a font of information. I've read that you became the second person to major in and graduate as an accordionist at the New England Conservatory in Boston. Were you ever swayed to major in piano instead? And what was that experience like to major in accordion? And did you have any great accordion professors or mentors? So it's interesting you say second, because everyone always says first. I'm wondering where you read that, because there's we're I'm always trying to figure out they have no records of another accordion, list, but that's what I read. Yeah, I can't definitively say I was the first because uh, Anthony, uh, no, not Gallerini, sorry, Gaviani, who was my teacher's teacher, Tulio Gasparini's teacher, Gaviani's son told me that Frank Gaviani, his father, taught some classical accordion back in the 40s at NEC. And they have no records of that. But I presume it was true. So it's like, I almost say second because I'm guessing something was there, but I there's no record of it. But when I went, there was, you know, there was no accordion. There was no accordion teacher. Uh, I went just to learn music. And specifically, I, I went to more learn th more theory and jazz because I was in the contemporary improv department. NEC has three departments. They have jazz, classical, and contemporary improv. I always define contemporary improvisation department as everything that's not jazz and classical, but also jazz and classical really messed up. You know, like, okay, we're going to play A-Train, but all of us are going to play it in a different key and at a different tempo. Like, like that would be contemporary improv. Wow. But I was, you know, so they put me in that department because they didn't want to put me in jazz and put me in classical. But the thing is, I felt like contemporary improv was beyond jazz. I said, I have to learn jazz in theory before I'm going to dive into playing, you know, tapping on the grill of the accordion and making all this crazy modern contemporary sound. Like I, I want to learn the rules before I learn how to break the rules. 
and contemporary improv is about breaking rules. So I kind of did both at the same time. Uh, I was never pressured in playing piano, but because the, the thing was, NEC was the one school that accepted what I did. I went to Berkeley, and they laughed at the audition. They just laughed. It was like right out of a storybook. See, now that's odd because Berkeley's known for, you know, breaking through with new things to major in. I find that odd. Exactly. Except accordion. And then we could do a whole show on the last five to ten years of me trying to get them to start any kind of an accordion program or have me teach privately there. Just get get me in, in the teacher's list. So if a, a piano student wants to learn accordion, which you know would happen all the time, uh, just for composition arranging. And they they just won't do it. They will, and I know many people at Berkeley, but the, the, the heads of state, I just can't get through. There's still that accordion hate in, in the TV industry and all over the place, so it still exists in some places. Um, but Berkeley laughed at it, and I got into Berkeley on clarinet. But NEC was the school that was like, oh, this is unique. This is cool. This would fit our contemporary improv department uh, that Gunther Schuler started. Oh. And talk about a legend of music, you know, Gunther and I, I got to play for him once and, and, and meet him at uh, one of the shows before he died. But he was the one that put that in there. And, and even though NEC is seen as this old, crusty, heavy conservatory like a, a Juilliard or a Curtis or an Oberlin, they were as progressive as anyone because this idea in the 70s to have a jazz and a contemporary improv department was unheard of. Um, and that's that's what I went into. So I, I thank Gunther. Uh, and Rand Blake for for getting me in there because I, I I went in as someone that knew theory so pretty well. Being an accordion player, you should know theory because the left hand of the accordion and the piano and the bellows. I mean, it's all all the answers are there. Um, but you know, I mainly played two or three genres. Barely could play jazz. Was just getting into it, uh, and was an accordion player. And I came out as a musician mm-hmm. who played the accordion. And that's always how I try to teach. Uh, and do master classes on because too much people are obsessed with becoming a great player of their instrument. And in the real world, it, it doesn't matter. It's what are you playing? What are you saying? It doesn't matter what instrument you cut on. Either you can play or you can't. It, and that's all that matters. So, and that was the idea there was I, I went to, and so I studied with Jerry Berganzi on saxophone. I studied with uh, Bob Moses on drums. I studied with George Garzon on saxophone, John McNeil on the trumpet. Uh, Hank Kisnetsky, of course, was, was huge for me on all kinds of different things. Uh, and then Dominic Eid, singer, you know, so and people are like, well, how do you learn to get better at accordion doing with a drummer or a singer? It's like, well, th- th- of course, those, that's vital. That's <laughs> how so you become a better musician. You know, at some point, you practicing an F sharp major scale on the accordion, it, it's just, it's not going to, it's diminishing returns. Like, okay, you can play it slightly better today. You have to know what to do when you're in F sharp, or if the singer just randomly goes to G, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, those are the skills you, you need uh, in the real world, which you know, and all the things that you've done, my goodness. So, um, and that, that's, that's what I mainly went there for. And since I've graduated, and you see, I've just been travel, 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 traveling. That's interesting. I also read that you filled in for um, a legendary accordion player, Myron Florin, of the Lawrence Welk Show, at the age of twelve. That was my uh, that was my big kind of opening gig of my life. I was uh, the Lawrence Welk Show, the traveling Lawrence Welk Show, came to Rhode Island, and we had a place called the Warwick Tent, and this was a very cool building. It was like a tent, but the stage was a circle and it would spin and you would put you in the middle. 
so that you wouldn't get too sick. <laughs> if you're on the outside, you move more. So uh, the audience is totally around you. The, the stage spins. It's fun. And, and they wanted me to do kind of a, I don't know, my dad somehow got to know the owner and, and bamboozled them somehow to get me to play a 10 minute. I, I, I knew like five tunes at this point. And to, to do like a 10 minute opener before the Lawrence Welk show came on. And a couple of days before, uh, day before, it was actually Myron Florin. I said, it's sick. He's not going to be able to go on the trip. Can you do more like 20 minutes instead of five to 10 minutes? So <laughs> I, I had to play every tune I do. It was, you know, the classic Lady of Spain. It was Roll Out the Barrel. It was Anniversary Waltz. It was, you know, all, all kind of your standard accordion tunes that you learn early on. And that was my first big gig. And you know what's so funny about that gig that you mentioned it? It is still the only time in my entire career, and this is my first big gig, it's the only time in my career my, where my name has been in lights on the side of a building. Wow. It's so funny. <laughs> I almost don't want to get on so I can keep that random statistic up because it's such a unique statistic. That's great. Well, if I can um, uh, enlighten the listeners here, because when you talk about Myron Florin, Accordion, The Lawrence Welk Show, I mean, this is from, I mean, when I was a kid, um, on Sunday night, your parents would sit you down, you would watch Ed Sullivan. That's another show no one knows about anymore. Uh, but Lawrence Welk had a phenomenal orchestra. You know, it was basically a big band with strings and organ player, uh, male and female vocalist. And incredible stuff. And Myron was the guest. I mean, not the guest. He was the featured uh, accordion player for the show. And that at times he would take over for Lawrence. And right. He, he was so close to Lawrence, he'd actually take over the show sometimes. <laughs> exactly. And it was considered by most to be very corny. But, man, every one of those guys could play their butt off. And, uh, you know, I've heard stories that, you know, on the weekends they would go out and play their jazz gigs, but they were just all tremendous players. And, you know, he had a certain way about them. Okay, you stand up all at the same time. You always smile. You know, you look in the camera and make everyone happy. So for you to have that experience, that's incredible. No, it wasn't. And to beat Bobby, um, I think it was Bobby and Sissy that I met. Um, and, and, uh, Arthur Duncan wasn't there, but who's the guy that played the vibes and dance? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, he was awesome. Oh, that's right. What's his name? I know our, our Lawrence Welk trivia over here. We're going to go on Lawrence Welk Jeopardy. I, <laughs> no one's going to know what that is, but I remember, yeah, Joe Feeney. And of course, Joanne Castle was a phenomenal accordion player. Absolutely phenomenal accordion player. But, but, but. Myron was already the guy, so so we had her do ragtime piano. And I mean, you won't find someone play ragtime piano her left hand better. She never looked at her left hand. She never missed a dang note. Uh, just an incredible musician that Joanne was. And but yeah, like you said, it, it was always seen by anyone under the age of like sixty as incredibly corny. From then on, and even uh, Saturday Night Live did a skit once. On oh, it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But the thing was, as you said, the musicians had massive governors on them. And Lawrence put a big stranglehold governor on all of them. But if you let them go loose, every one of them was a complete monster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so that was the thing. And and Lawrence, it's sad that it's, it said Myron Florin is kind of seen by many as, oh, yeah, well, that's the reason the accordion, whoever the, the accordion player was on Lawrence Welk. It's not true because Myron was a tremendous. His technique was clean as a whistle. Yes. Uh, he was a tremendous player. Great, just clean playing and a super nice guy. Um, 
but it, it was Lawrence was a horrendously bad accordion player. I mean, he was beyond terrible. But that you know, but he once in a while you'd just see him play. Let me call you sweetheart, maybe. But Myron would be there to back him up and to save him. But the thing was, yes, the show hurt the accordion because there was an accordion player on it. But if people actually stopped and, and you know actually paid attention when their grandfather said, "We got to watch Lawrence walk," and actually listen, they said, "Oh, wait, that accordion player." He's that good. So, and I, and I learned a lot of arrangements, you know, when I was a kid, my dad would record stuff on the VHS and I was like the big TiVo thing, hey, put the VHS in, record it. And, and I'd go back and try to learn by ear, you know, different uh, t- uh, tunes that, that they would play on that show. So uh, it was, ob- yeah, it was obviously very cool to open up for and be uh, in the, in the place of Myron for that particular show, but he was a great player. It's just the show again, with the things we talked about that hurt the accordion. That was another one that the Lawrence Welk show was huge and older people watched it. So the kids, again, what, what are my parents, grandparents? Oh, they watch that. Okay. Oh, I'm not going to do anything that's on there. Uh, but, it, but it, it's a, it's a great museum of American music. You want to learn all the classic American tunes of the last century. Just learn the to cherry pink and apple possum pie, uh, peg of my heart, the shine on harvest moon. All those classic tunes were played on there. That was the American songbook right there. Yeah. So uh, if you can uh, tell my listeners about your experience of being a three-time, three-time, wow, again, I got to say it again, three-time world accordion champion. Wow. Well, I mean, that goes back to what I said. I, you know, my, my main initial motivation was competition um, of, of playing, which is funny because that's definitely not my strongest suit in terms of playing a piece perfectly. I'm an improviser. Um, so it's, it's, and always really have been. So that was always a struggle to play exactly what's on a music and the judge, you know, marks off anything, you know, <laughs> play perfectly, which everybody in violin, piano, cello, all have the same stories of that, of course. But, um, after I had won the national championship when I was 15 and really tied the record with, uh, with Steve Domenko, who later became a dear friend of mine, who was still, and probably always will be the youngest world champion ever. He was 17. He won the world championship in the sixties. And, um, I, I, I was kind of retired. I was like, okay, that's it. I, you know, I wanted to win a national championship. I did that. Now I want to become a better musician. I went to NEC and the idea of competitions was, was over, but then when I was doing stuff at Roland, they, they said, Hey, the, the world championships, which we call the Coupe Mondiale, are going to be uh, having a digital category for the first time ever. Now the, the Roland digital came out in 05 and this was 2009. So, uh, you know, they had finally said, okay, maybe we'll have a digital category. And they said, you don't have to have music. And it's all about how you use the instrument. Can you use the instrument? Well, and I thought, well, that would mean being able to play a ton of genres, which I'm really good at. And that's how you can showcase the different sounds, playing different genres and being authentic about it. And I was still like, I don't know if I want to do it. And they said, well, it's in New Zealand. I said, sign me up. (laughs) I always wanted to go to New Zealand. So uh, I played the Katadi Accordion Festival for the first time, which I just came back from a couple of weeks ago. I've played there pretty much every year since uh, in San Francisco. And as soon as that festival was over, I was driven to the San Francisco International Terminal. I went to New Zealand. And and played in that competition and won. And then I said, okay, I got a world championship now. All right, now I'm done. Now I'm done. Now I'm really retired. Uh, and then a jazz situation happened where I could I could do that. I said, wow, I got to do that. I won that. I said, now I'm really I'm done. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's it. And then when I would from you know when anytime you'd promote the world championship thing, um, 
there was always grumblings in the accordion world. Well, yeah, that's not a real world championship. I mean, there wasn't that many competitors and the, the competition wasn't that great. And, and, you know, Corey can't play an acoustic accordion. He's, you know, he's not that great at that. He's the digital guy. And it's true. I mean, I, ever since I started playing electric in 06, I maybe, you know, a couple of hours a year will play an acoustic accordion. I never play it, but I was like, okay, you know, you, you don't tell an Italian they can't do something. I don't have a teacher anymore. Uh, I don't play acoustic. I'm still going to beat you all. So the, the excitement was uh, the Primacy Colonnade was this big, like, Olympic World Championship that was on national TV in Finland, because that's how big accordion is in Finland. The World Championships are on national TV. Couldn't imagine that happening in the United States. So, I, and I'd known about this competition, and it always looked cool, and but all the top players that would win the Coupe Mondiale World Championships would always compete in it. And, you know, I'm not practicing eight hours a day. I can't compete with those guys to, to play that perfectly and, and play the, the Bach crazy, you know, the free bass. I don't play free bass on the left hand, so I can't, I can't compete with that. But this competition was much more about your overall musicality when I would watch different years past. So I said, hmm, okay, there's never been an American at this competition. No one's ever been invited because it wasn't really anybody good enough to compete in it. And I said, okay, I could be the first American to do this if I go there. And you get a whole band, you get a full like eight-piece band there on TV, on stage. And it's Finland. This sounds fun. So I wrote out all my own arrangements. And I had one set of jazz for round one. And then a whole set of all different genres, from Balkan to French to tango, everything all together, uh, ending in a klezmer piece for round two. And, of course, yeah, I didn't know if I was even going to use that. You've got to get to round two to end up using it. And they have eight contestants that are all national championships from, from around the world, and, and they invite you in. And it's kind of eight goes down to four, goes down to two, and you have a, have a winner, uh, just like a tournament. <laughs> so I, I went out. And and won the thing. And it was that was certainly my my greatest achievement because I won it on my philosophy of being a great musician, being good enough at the instrument, certainly good enough of being a great musician is more important than worrying about can you play this really difficult piece perfectly. That's right. And I was so relaxed in before I went on stage and everybody else is freaking out, you know, it's like a normal competition, there's TVs here. I was totally relaxed because I was about to improvise. Now, of course, I had to stick with the tunes and stick with the, every, my arrangements and know where the hits were, know where the pauses were, everything else. But I, it was still going to be improvised. And I didn't, you know, I don't prepare that stuff. It's like it's illegal in jazz. You don't prepare solos. You just go up and play. And there's even a lick in there in, in that competition, which if you, if you search my name on YouTube, it's usually one of the first three things that come up. But I was so relaxed. The German kid who became a dear friend of mine after um, – you know, I, I told him, I said, look, I'll give you a couple of random jazz licks. You pick one and I'll put it. I'll make sure I put it in there because I'm so relaxed. I'll remember to put it in there. And I, <laughs> I did. And and but it was I was motivated to win. I mean, I was I was going in there Tom Brady style. It's like I am here to win. I am here to beat everyone's butt uh, and, and prove that you don't have to play the instrument. You don't have to even have a teacher. Uh, it, it's if you're a great musician, that is what will matter. And and we had a blast with the band. The band was tremendous. The clarinet player, though, wanted to kill me because the the end of the klezmer piece was so difficult, and I had him playing thirds over my melody. <laughs> he was great about it, but 
<laughs> oh my God, it was difficult. But, you know, we, we had a blast. And the round three was actually an improv competition. We played Lieber Tango. You may have even heard Lieber Oh, sure. Solo piece. So we had to just basically play the two of us, play Lieber Tango together with the band and improvise on it. And I always knew watching it years past, if I ever do this competition, I get to round three, it's over. You know, I'm, I'm not losing the improv competition if I get that far. So it, <laughs> so I was able to win that. And then I probably officially for the third time, it became Brett Favre, actually retired. And uh, no, I, I, now I judge competition, so I don't <laughs> compete in them anymore. But um, that that's kind of the story. And in doing so, I became the only accordionist to ever win world championships in digital acoustic and be a jazz player and win jazz. Uh, so... But I, and that wasn't even my thought going into it. But, you know, I, I just wanted to do that to prove so that no one can ever say, well, Corey can't play acoustic. No, I have a world championship in it. I can play it. But no, I, I can't play the stuff the Russians do and then Eastern Europe. Yeah, they're practicing eight hours a day. But it's different skill sets. You know, I, I can do things they can do. They can do things I can't do. That's I mean, that's the whole fun of <laughs> being a musician. <laughs> you know, you know, Ray, Ray Charles and Art Tatum are extremely different. It doesn't it doesn't mean I wouldn't hire each one of them for different things. <laughs> well, that's really fascinating. You know, all the things you were just sharing, and along with being a musician, and I know this from talking to you and seeing your videos. You travel from here to there. You play all different types of gigs. And um, there is one musician that I played with years ago, a, a great jazz accordionist. And uh, I looked on your uh, bio, and you happened to uh, have performed with him, uh, a friend of mine, Eddie Montero. Oh, my God. How's Eddie that? Eddie Montero. He, he, to me, is the greatest jazz accordion player to ever live. Okay. Uh, he's the best bass lines guy. Oh, he's, his God. court substitutions are on a different level. Um, he, he actually, I have, a, I have a message saved because he gave me a happy birthday this year. and had I, I don't know what the heck court substitutions he used on that one, but that was, <laughs> you never know with Eddie. Uh, as, as he says, about himself he says my mind is a dangerous place to live yeah that, that that's exactly what he would say well i i started playing with uh eddie i think in the 80s uh club dates became a really big thing you know you'd play lots of weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff like that and um i was told on one gig oh today uh, you're going to be with um, a great accordion player, Eddie Montero. I heard about him. I said, oh, is that the jazz guy? Yeah. So I came on. We hit it off right away. And, oh, my, yeah, his chord substitutions, his technique. And as you're playing, he's cracking you up. He's telling you the most outrageous jokes as he's playing all this complicated stuff. He was just the easiest going guy in the world. Uh, wow. I mean, yeah, he is a tremendous, tremendous jazz accordion player. Yeah. And, and his teacher was Charlie Nunzio, who was oh boy. one of the legends uh, of accordion who died uh, about 15 years ago. He would he would be hmm, 110 or so by now, but um, died at 98. But he was he was Eddie's teacher and, and he was trying to get Eddie to go to the Coupe Mondiale and compete way back in the day and and he was good at it but he always wanted to play jazz that was always his thing and in fact he he's he's a pilot he's a wine connoisseur they actually some company in italy wanted to hire him to oversee their wine wow. and he had to go to them and say i would love this more than anything but one small problem 
I want to play jazz accordion, so I'm going to stay in New York and be a jazz accordionist. <laughs> I'm sure the guy just like died on the spot. Like, what, you want to? You don't want to go to Italy? You, what? <laughs> and uh, obviously, in the accordion world, we're grateful that he made that decision. Um, and it's just—it's funny because a lot of people don't know who he is, and you know, there there are many many jazz accordionists throughout history. But to me, I I, I mean. I think it's solid. I've, now, obviously, he's later, so you always have to, you know, handicap the situation with music of of you know where someone lies. That's why Art Tatum to me is just so high up there because what he did then in the '30s is still extremely difficult to think of and do today. And he was doing it in the '30s. So Eddie, of course, got to listen to Art Van Dam and Frank Morocco and Tommy Gamina and all these guys. But there's just no one that has the full set of skills uh, that that Eddie has. And, and it's just, and it's so great. And he's, yeah, as you said, he's a complete comedian. I mean, he's made me cry laughing more times than I can remember where well, you, you can't stand up and, uh, he's, he's, he's great, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of great accordion history, Oh yeah, uh, all over the place. And uh, a lot of people don't know, but the thing is, it's not so wide ranging. I mean, someone could spend two years of their life playing accordion and studying accordion history. They know everything where I feel like piano history or guitar history, you could spend your whole life and still not know everybody you need to know. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not too much of it. Obviously there was a ton more in the forties and the fifties, uh, into the sixties, but I'm trying to, trying to get it to happen again. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing it. Just keep going. So you mentioned, uh, like I did about Eddie, you know, just cracking everyone up, just a great uh, comedic style about him and a serious musician. So speaking about comedy, uh, could you share a few funny stories about the music business or musicians? Or Because, you know, as a working musician, as both you and I are, you see some really outrageous, funny things and they, you know, crave for great stories. Goodness, I, that's a good one. You'd think I'd have like some story right offhand. Or anything. Um, I mean, certainly something that has happened multiple times that would be funny to a lot of people listening is that whenever I get on a plane, which is a whole other thing about how to get on the plane with the accordion and put it above. So I have to, of course, you know, pick it up. And it's a bit awkward. It's 25 pounds in the, in the case and, and get it up. And it looks like it's not going to fit, even though it will fit because of the curve in the front. It fits perfectly on 737s or Airbus 320s or bigger. Uh, but but when I'm putting it up, Stuart's is like, oh, God, what's, what's this guy doing? He's not going to. And then I put it in. It fits in. And they go, oh, what's that? Right? And, of course, I said, well, it's uh, <clears throat> accordion. <laughs> you cough. <laughs> accordion. Yeah, yeah. I cough about five times. Uh, accordion. And, and they go. Oh, do you, either they'll say, do you play polka? Which I have to go, oh, yes, I do. But also I play jazz and rock and funk and like, you know, but, 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 but the lot of times I just, well, are you going to play for us? Oh, right? sure. And I, always, and I always say, well, I'd love to, because who knows who's on the plane? They could make a great connection. So I've played probably, I don't know, a handful of times on planes and uh and i play into the you know the the the, the telephone speaker at the front <laughs> really that they talk into and they hold that to the speaker which doesn't work great on the uh, electric because uh, the speakers it's much better through the system but you know <laughs> so i play and and i always think no and i always try to look through the crowd while i'm playing and i'm looking at who 
is so pissed off that there's an accordion playing while they're trying to sleep or listen to the music. Everyone? Yeah. No, you'll see a lot of them get their phones out because, you know, it's something to tell. Oh, my God, on the way here, you're not going to believe what happened. But you can always kind of pick out the people that are like, this bleeping and bleep, bleep, bleep. I'm trying to listen to my <laughs> video, and then they got an accordion. Even if I play something really cool, there's still going to be four or five people. I'm like, oh, so that that's always kind of a, certainly a unique aspect of things. That's a perfect uh, pitch for an SNL skit right there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, now I'm having a great. And then after I play, some guy with a banjo stands up. Hey, can I play my banjo? Oh god. Oh yeah, that'd be great. And then, and then a tuba guy. Then a we just hit all of them, you know, the, the trombone, the whole New Year's Eve skit, a trombone player, banjo player, tuba and accordion player play the New Year's Eve gig. And, hey, you're hired next year. And I said, can we leave our instruments here? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of, you know, just incredible Certainly incredible experiences. I mean, I, I hung out with Quincy Jones for almost three hours at his house talking about everything under the sun. Barely music. It was, uh, you know, just uh, all the stories that he has about everyone under the sun imaginable. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of crazy and amazing experiences. It's funny. There's not something specifically. I know there's one or two in there, but that are uh, hilarious about something that uh, happened. Just playing the accordion on a plane, I think that's a, a number one story right there. I, I haven't heard that from anyone else. And and actually, the last time it happened, the, the woman that was on the plane that wanted me to play, it was her last flight. Uh, and we stayed in touch. Uh, she's a really, really wonderful lady. And it was just crazy that that happened. And I wasn't supposed to be on the plane. I actually was traveling with Preetam. Preetam is like the Hans Zimmer of India. He writes all music for big Bollywood films. Mm. And he did a tour in North America, and they hired me to be the accordion player. And it was like 50 of us, and we'd fly everywhere. And I told them at the beginning uh, that, you know, my accordion can only fly on certain kind of planes. And they're like, yeah, 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 we know. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> the Indians, just, they're the nicest people, but a little sometimes not so organized. And then I, and they, we had a problem getting on the plane. Like, ah, oh. I said, don't worry, I, I book Southwest all the time. I'll just, I'll just book a Southwest flight, and we'll deal with it later. So I went, you know, to a different terminal and got on this flight last minute, and and went on, and and so it was crazy. I wasn't supposed to be on the flight. I play. She was a fan of accordion, and it was her last flight. It was a pretty cool. And then I made a whole video. I edited a whole video before we landed, so I could post it when we landed about me playing and the whole thing. So, uh, but the crazy things like that, you know, are always happening. With as much as I travel and run around, like I said, I, I was just in 17 different places in the last 45 days, uh, flying here, flying there. It's. I think I talked to you in Florida, which was uh, how many trips ago my yes <laughs> and the festivals i do because people always say oh yeah you're on tour and i always go well, i would never call it a tour because i'm playing a private gig here i'm playing another private thing here then i'm doing an italian festival then i'm doing a jazz festival then i'm doing an accordion festival then i'm doing another italian festival then i'm doing a bar mitzvah on the way because a friend just said hey you're in town come and do this yeah, everything is different and most of it just happens in the moment of of connections calling me or you know i'm calling someone there if they got a gig oh come by the gig bring the bring the box we'll throw you on stage you know that that's usually how most things happen and my life is very much not the usual i have a gig here i have a gig here i have a gig here it's not usually like that it's it's usually a whole mix of a gazillion things thrown together which i love 
I, I come from the same school of thought. I mean, I was brought up to, you know, study your craft, know your instruments, play every genre, because if you want to provide for your family, you have to play, you know, paying gigs. If you still want to do your jazz or classical, absolutely. But if you have the know-how on how to get paid for what you love to do and provide a service, that's fantastic. So speaking of the music business, what do you wish you had known when you started out in the music business? What do I wish I had known? Maybe the the deep-seated hate for the accordion. (laughs) I think I knew. I kind of knew that early on. I knew what I was up against. Um, I mean, people, like you said, did, did NEC try to push me to be piano? No, but people when I was growing up all, all the time, different agents and people that saw my talent were like, you should switch to piano. And I always said, no, but there's a million amazing piano players. They don't need me. I want to do this. You know, this is, this is, I was wanted to be different and unique. So that worked. But what do I wish I knew? I can tell you musically, I wish I had done Hannon say one and two in every key up and down all the time when I was a kid. Wow. That is something I always teach people that that would be in the same fingerings for every movement. You leave the same fingers and there's so many awkward positionings and every single one of the, you know, seven times 12 is, is different. So it is really, you know, that, that's something I wish I, I did. Uh, in terms of the music business, I wish I had known that the most fun and awesome gigs are the ones you get paid the most and the worst, most dumb, horrible gigs you hate are the ones you get paid the least. It's just like the music world is completely on the opposite. I always, always talk to musicians about, yeah, don't you wish the gig where you got all the food and got to meet the most amazing people at this $25 million mansion and had the night of your life, you wish you got paid $100 for that. But that awful gig where you had to play with the awful singer and got treated like crap and walked through the kitchen for then had to play a four-hour gig, you wish that one was 3000 <laughs> You know, Right, right. Combat pay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's completely uh, the the flip of things. And then when you do a concert, you know, where where you're in lights, you're in the paper, you're on the news, you're doing radio hits, people are like, oh my god, you had all these people come out, you were in the you're all over the media, man, you must have made good money. And you go, well, no, I, I luckily only lost about two hundred dollars to put on this concert. And you're like, what? <laughs> but the gig where you say, oh, you're the accordion player, yeah, go in the corner and just play background music for two hours. That's the gig where you make two grand. <laughs> It's, That's it's, right. It's completely the opposite of what most people, you know, think about and, and realize from from the audience perspective. It's just it's so different. Um, but, you know, that's that's that. I certainly I mean, I wish I started jazz younger. Um, I'm happy I did so much classical when I was young because, yeah, kind of you mentioned it. If, if you have a foundation of classical and jazz, that will give you the technique and the theory knowledge to pretty much tackle every genre of music in the world. Uh, and you'll be ready, you know, with, with the skills to play most of it outside of like Eastern European Balkan music. That stuff is, whoo, that's a, that's a different animal. <laughs> and I love it. And some of the most bad accordion players in the world are from that region of the world. Do you have any musical or life philosophies that you live by? Hmm. And there's certainly many in, in, in different categories. Um, I mean, I'm very much meritocracy based, which is something that's being lost, um, you know, in, in young people in modern young society that just running away from meritocracies. And I think it's just it's it's so vital, even even in music, uh, which is music is certainly an art in general, as much 
less subjective and more objective than people try to make it. I, I one of the, this great classical guitar player, I know, uh, explained it just perfectly uh, about judgment of music. He said, once you get over it, it's like all this world is like a ruler. And once you get past the 11 inch mark, then it is stupid to debate, you know, who's better, Oscar Peterson or Tatum or Kirby Hancock or Chick Corea. Then it gets stupid. Like, why are we debating that? But until you get to the 11 inch mark, no. <laughs> You need to judge yourself. You need to let people judge you. You need to, you know, you need to take advice and how do I get better? How do I climb the ladder? How do I get better? Um, you know, I, I just, I'm always, my dad always, you know, taught me because he, he was, he was a house builder and he said, you know, and he would do everything in speculation. He would design it. He would build it, everything. He would bring people in his house on open house and I'll take you to lunch. If you tell me what you hate about the house, I don't want to hear what you like. I want to hear what you don't like. Very smart. You know, and, and that, and that's how I've always done everything. Even if it, a homeless person might hear you play, it might have a comment that you actually go, Oh, he's kind of right. You don't know. And, and we've become so petrified of judgment and offending people. And it's just, that's not how I grew up. I'm Italian. Okay. We're very <laughs> harsh, tough love, judgmental people. And, you know, I think I've gotten three compliments from my dad, my whole life on my playing. Even when I won that world last world championship, he went, you must've paid off someone. How the hell did you win that? You know, he didn't say congratulations. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very tough love because then it, it forces you to strive harder and you try to prove people wrong. And the thing is, if, if you don't, you know, if you have that tough love upbringing and, and, and you say, oh, I'm sick of this guy, you know, mom and dad, you, you, rah, and, you and you quit, well, then you weren't cut out for it. But if you say, screw you, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove you wrong, well, then, then, then you're ready. Then you're ready for the, the world ahead, that you're going to keep pushing and try to climb and go harder. But, you know, you have to be open to judgment and, and all that. I mean, that, that's what you want, especially at NEC. They definitely had that culture. I mean, every student there was ridiculous. And if you didn't measure up with, with the event you played or the rehearsal or whatever, I mean, you, you knew you sucked. And it was your job to fix it <laughs> and get better quickly. And that's why everybody over there, you know, pushed higher. I grew up with that tough love um, type of uh, home life. You know, it's very loving, but I mean, they're pr trying to prepare you for the real world. And I, I get that. Do you have any advice that you could share with someone that's listening right now? Because if I'm listening as a new person, my sense of you is, wow, this guy thinks outside the box. And someone says, you can't go through that wall. And you're going, I'm going through that wall. Watch me. <laughs> and you do it. So could you give any advice to someone that's thinking, gee, I would like to do what that guy's doing and think outside the box and achieve that? Well, it's first of all, I would say, listen, 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 and study theory. You know, th those are two big, two big things. If you want motivation on how to cheat on the test, this is how you, you know, it's like, oh God, I don't, I don't want to have to practice this music. And, you know, people get, <laughs> they, they lose the motivation of practicing, especially when they're young. It's like, okay, well, here's a cheat code. Instead of sitting and practicing at the piano and practicing your Mozart, okay, listen, just do a lot of listening, but not just like listening and on your phone, on TikTok. No, actually sitting, eyes closed, listening analyzing why why did that sound good oh because it was five and then they resolved to one just basic stuff like that let alone advanced stuff and understand music from the ear and then and then analyze and go around and, and really study the theory and 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 the audible aspect of it 
especially if you're having trouble being motivated to practice because th- those skills are what's <laughs> needed so much in the real world when you get thrown into various situations. Um, so that's one. The other thing with out of the box is kind of like what I said before with the, you know, hierarchies and meritocracies is that you have to find that balance of you want to go the path that has been there and been and stated as this is the way things are done. This is how you get better. You want to find that balance of, yes, you should go by it. Even if you don't like things, you don't agree with something, you should do that. But also as you earn your badges, then you can go outside the box more and more. I always explain it as like, you know, thinking of the, the few people that are <laughs> famous that are that are actually worthy of their fame. Stevie Wonder. If Stevie Wonder came out with an album of one note, I would buy it. Why? He's already proved he's earned his badges. That's right. He knows improvising and music and theory and his musicianship is as good as anybody alive. So if he comes out with an album that has one note, I'm going to buy it because he already earned his badges. He's climbed the meritocracy and done it you know, in the ways that we can analyze his core changes and his soloing and everything and see how good he is. But then if he does something totally different, we're going to be interested because he may have thought of something no one's thought of yet. But if Miley Cyrus, you know, it comes out, I'm not, I'm not buying. She hasn't proven to me that she knows anything about music theory or, or as a music. I want to see the badges. I want to see earned status. This is why I like Lady Gaga. Even when she was composing three chord music, I know from people in New York that she could go to a jazz club and sing Lush Life in D flat in perfectly. So she's earned her badges with the real world music. So then if she comes out with a bad romance, which actually isn't that bad of a tune, but something that's really simple with two, three chords, I'm still going to listen because I know she can go to Broadway. She can sing jazz standards. She knows the words. She understands the chords. She plays piano. I can respect that. But if you don't, if you don't have some kind of level of, of judgment like that, then you, what happens is you deteriorate looking at the greats of the past, and you start having trouble explaining why Art Tatum is better than a Taylor Swift. That should be an incredibly obvious grass is green, sky is blue thing. It should be very obvious. But when you get into a world where you're afraid to judge and afraid to, you know, with the criticism and everything, then it becomes, well, it's just some people like Taylor and some people like Art. No. You're disrespecting the Nat King Coles of the world or the Duke Ellingers of the world or, or the Stravinsky's of the world or the Tchaikovsky's. There has to, you have to you know, understand there, there's a balance between climbing the official ladder that is laid before you, but also going outside of the box. And that's what I've tried to do in my career, that, yes, I'm doing all this wacky stuff that some of the accordion world does not like and doesn't approve of, but they can't say anything because I did win world championships in their world of competition. So you try to do both uh, and try to gain respect, but also be, you know, doing something unique, but you got to do them both together. You can't just do something unique and say, well, I'm an artist. You got to earn the respect of, of the elites in your world. And, and unfortunately in jazz, that's kind of the only thing we can do. You know, even if you become a legend in jazz, I mean, you know, eight people know who you are. It's not like you're going to be Beyonce. But that, that's what you have to take in. You know, if Wynton Marsalis enjoyed playing with me, if, you know, Quincy Jones enjoyed listening to me, okay, that, I have to take that as if a billion fans liked what I did because you're never probably going to get that. So, you, you know, do the elites in my field or in the accordion world, does Eddie Montero like playing with me? 
that means more to me than than something else because I look up to him and that's and that's what matters. But you have to be open to the criticism and the judgment and accepting if you want to get better at something, okay, well you you gotta be open to listen to what people have to say. You don't have to agree with all of it, but you gotta listen to it. You can at least take it in and think about it. Bravo. I love the answers. That's really great. So do you have any music events or new projects coming up that you'd like to announce or share with the listeners? Um, let's see. I wish we had this interview seven weeks ago. I'd be on the phone for two hours <laughs> talking about what's coming up. Um, I have a private thing in L.A., which looks like it's going to be on TV. So we'll see, give you more information later, maybe in another seven, eight days. Um, Let me know. Could be could be a big thing. Um, then I go and do private events in Formula One in Texas. This is the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin. Um, what is the next public thing? I'm doing an event with Mario Andretti. So there's another combination. Uh, who's a new buddy of mine, uh, and he, we're, they're honoring him at this Rhode Island event. Just so happens I got to know him recently. So I'm going to be playing at that event. Uh, and the Rhode Island Italian Hall of Fame organization is is doing a big big event there. Uh, I'm trying to work with the governor right now to get a street because they were trying to say what do we give him as a present? What do we give him as a prize? You know, he's got enough trophies and plaques. I said, wait a minute. I know the governor. Let's see if we can get a street named Andretti Drive or something. There you <laughs> so go. I'm trying, trying to do something like that. Um, but it's not a concert per se. God, I just did so many festivals and concerts the past couple of weeks. Um, I played at Birdland on Monday and I'd never done that. That was the first time that happened. Oh boy, I'm trying. What the heck do I have coming up? I'll have to. I'll, I'll get back to you on this TV thing because that could be big. Yeah, please do, <laughs> and I'll post it. So, how and where can my audience of listeners reach you? So certainly at uh, CoreyPesadero.com or CPezMusic.com. Also goes to the same same spot, and or of course at CPez for for Instagram and then Facebook is Corey Pesteros so different ways and there's always a million videos uh, on YouTube to get an idea of kind of what I do I made a highlights video once because <laughs> it's too many times people are like I don't get it you do you do Italian music you do French music you do jazz you do I don't get it it's like well I, I do all of it <laughs> agents agents hate it for that like I, I've never been able to get an agent because they're like we need you to do one thing I'm like I'm not doing one thing I just can't I love doing all of it. I do one thing. It's called music. It's, it's called music. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. Yeah. They, you know, their head explodes. I get that. I, I know. I know. Well, listen, uh, it's been such a great time having you here. Uh, I appreciate it very much. You taking the time to let me interview you because I've learned so much about you. And I hope somewhere in the future that we get a chance to play together that would be a lot of fun oh yeah well that that must happen obviously um especially <laughs> we still haven't haven't met and everything else but it'll it'll happen it'll happen oh yeah absolutely so you have a great night and i will talk to you real soon all right scott thank you for having me absolutely <laughs> my pleasure take care bye-bye Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. Please spread the word to your family and friends about my podcast. And if you would like to discuss got chops in between episodes, you can reach me on Instagram at got chops podcast and on Twitter at Grimaldi music. I can also be reached on Facebook, Scott Grimaldi, the color of midnight 
My website is grimaldimusic.com, and the address for this podcast is anchor.fm slash gotchops. Before I conclude with today's show, I'd like to share a catchphrase of mine that you'll probably hear me say quite often, for I truly believe it sums up what every artist has in common in order to achieve their chops. And it goes like this. It's not my way, it's the way it is. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops. Chops.